We're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. If you want to open up your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing to study the theme is holding fast to your faith. And I want to start by looking backwards. Last week, Pastor Jason brought the message where he ended in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. So let's just take a look at where we closed off last week as Pastor Blackley brought the message. For you have need of endurance. You have need for endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what's promised. For yet a little while, it's quoting the Old Testament, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere in their souls. So last week, Pastor Blackley brought a message that talks about the reality of suffering and the need of enduring in our faith. But the question that I want to pose today that we're going to seek to answer is what kind of faith endures? What kind, because not all faiths endure. What kind of faith endures? A couple weeks ago, I was at a wedding of uh, my, uh, my daughter's Husband, his brother, one of the Abdo guys, got married, and, and I was there. And, and at the reception, I got to chatting with someone who used to attend Grace Community Church um, when they served as an intern for a parachurch ministry here in town. And we got to chatting, and, and he, he asked me, he said, can I ask you a random question? I said, sure. And he says, do you ever struggle with your faith? And I, I said, well, I've, do you mean are there times when I have questioned if what I believe is really true? The answer to that is yes. If by struggle you mean that I've drifted and continued to move in a direction where I'm, I feel I'm in danger of abandoning my faith? No, I haven't, I haven't gotten there. And I, and I said, why do you ask? And he said, because I'm there. I'm, I feel as if I'm losing my faith. Now, this isn't just some, some person who made a profession of faith. This is a person who spent a number of years in full-time service of Christ, and he's struggling whether or not he actually believes what he's always said he believes. And he says, I'm struggling because I've, I've seen a number of individuals that, that I served with, that I, that I mentored, that I discipled, and, and some even that I've, I've served alongside. They've abandoned their faith. I mean, they haven't, they're not just struggling. They've abandoned their faith. And, and it's, I, I'm in a season of, of just almost despair. Everyone doubts. Everyone doubts. And everyone goes through seasons where life comes at you and your faith doesn't make sense. And if you're not there now, you will be in the future. So it is imperative that we go to the scriptures and discern what kind of faith preserves our souls? What kind of faith actually proves true and strong and lasts to the end? That is what we seek to understand, not just this morning, but the next week as well. So we're going to take a look at a faith that endures. Faith that endures. This morning we're going to see two things in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Number one, What's the nature of faith? What's the nature of faith? What is belief? When we say belief, which is synonymous with faith, what do we even mean? What is it? 
The second thing we're going to see this morning is the object of faith. The object of faith. What is the faith in? What is, the, what is it that is believed? And that's verses 4 through 6. Now, this is incomplete because the chapter is a whole. So next week, we're going to get into, okay, the practice of faith. What does faith do? And then after that, we're going to look at, well, what is faith secure? What is faith secure? So that's an overview of the next two weeks. We're going to cover the first two points this morning, the nature of faith and the object of faith. So open your Bibles. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 6. We'll pray and we will get into the text. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, and by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And though his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith is it impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Father, we come to you in humble dependence upon you. Spirit, we thank you for the gift of the word of God. We pray, Lord, that it would take root in our hearts. Lord, there are people that are struggling right now in the midst of believing in you. Lord, they are in pain, and the pain has caused them to wonder, are you really there, and do you really love them? There are others, Father, who have not yet come to faith in you. And Lord, they are wondering, they are skeptical even perhaps, or even cynical. Lord, I pray that you would pierce the, uh, the hardness of their heart uh, and speak to their hearts and let them know that you are there. And Father, there are those who are not struggling now, but they will be someday. And I pray, Father, that you would ground them and root them in faith in Christ so that they may stand firm and stand firm to the end, holding fast to the profession of faith in you. Lord, may the preaching of your word bring you honor and bring exaltation to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, first of all, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the nature of faith. We're going to see three things in the first three verses. Number one, what faith is. Number two, what faith secures. And number three, where it begins where faith begins. Let's take a look at the scripture. Now, faith is what it is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this is not a Webster's Oxford Dictionary dictionation. I attended college. It's not a definition per se, but it is pretty comprehensive in terms of what the author wants to communicate here. So it gives us a rudimentary definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, first of all, the word faith, it just means trust. So think trust. Faith is trusting. Faith is the act of trusting, belief, It's not simply acknowledging something is real or something exists. It's placing one's trust in that thing. We'll get to that in a second. So that's what faith is. It's trust. In what? What's the text say? It says, in the assurance. 
in the assurance. Now, the word assurance, it means a positive declaration intended to give confidence in a promise. So faith is not just simply an intellectual assent. It's trusting that what is promised is going to come true, which leads us to the next thing. Assurance of what? The things hoped for. Now, when we use the word hope, typically in in the English language, we often use the word hope as synonymous with wish. Boy, I hope my team does well this week, or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's not what the author means. When the author uses the word hope, it's the, it's the, it's the, the belief that, that what is believed in is actually going to happen. It's not just a vague wish. It's, it's the assurance of things hoped for. And then take a look at the next phrase here. The conviction of things not Seen. That's an important word, conviction. It means firmly held belief. When you look up English in the dictionary, it says firmly held belief. But here's, here's the Greek word that's translated. In, it, it means the act of presenting evidence for the truth of something. Now, that definition right there in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, confounds what many people think when they think of his faith. Case in point. How many of you have heard this stated by Christians or people that are not Christians, or maybe you even said it yourself? You just got to believe. How many of you have heard that? You just have to believe. What do you mean by just? The assumption is, is that faith is not rooted in evidence. It's not something that can be empirically investigated, you just got to believe. In other words, faith is contrary to reason. Faith is contrary to rationality. Faith is blind. You just got to believe. That is a very harmful, harmful way to look at faith because that kind of understanding of what faith is will not endure. Because that's not what the author's talking about. There is no, you just got to believe. Faith is what? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Here's one thing that faith is not. That's what faith is. Here's what faith is not. Faith is not blind. Faith is not blind. And the idea that you just got to believe implies that you have to believe Apart from reason. What what did Jesus say? The the two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and what? Mind. You, you, You cannot love God with all your mind if you just got to trust in something that your mind cannot embrace. You cannot prove faith in anything, in anything, by em by reason alone. But faith in Christ is a very reasonable proposition. You must use your mind. Faith is not blind. Faith is rational. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke, in the preface of his, of his gospel, the account and the works of the life of Jesus, listen to what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were, were what? were eyewitnesses 
and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have taught. Now notice what Luke did not say. Theophilus, you just got to believe. No, that's not what he said. He says, I have written an orderly account. I have listed the eyewitnesses. This is historical documented evidence. And I'm writing these things so you can have conviction of the things that you currently believe. He's talking about the kind of faith that the author of Hebrews is talking about. They're one and the same. And that faith is not blind. That faith is not blind. Let's take a look at the next section of scripture here. For by it, that faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now we're going to spend a great deal of time next week unpacking what that means, the people of old having received their commendation. We're going to see the practice of faith and the reward of faith next week. But it suffices to say that that's true of the Old Testament times. It's also true of New Testament and beyond times. We are saved by grace, that's a gift of God, through faith, trusting, through faith. And we are not saved by works. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by faith. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that we are justified by faith. Justified means we're declared not guilty in his sight by our trust, faith, in what Jesus has done. And we are declared righteous by our trust, our faith, in what Jesus has done. So that's what commendation means. We're commended not because of our works. We're commended because of our trust or faith. More on that next week. Now let's take a look at verse 3 here. For by faith, that is trust, we trust, we trust, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So that's where faith begins. So what is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is trust. What is, what is faith secure? Commendation from God. Where does it begin? It begins in the beginning. It begins in the fact that regardless of whether or not you have ever opened a Bible, regardless of the fact that you have ever heard the name Jesus uttered from human lips or read it in the scriptures, every human being can go out and see the testimony of creation that screams, I am here. This is my handiwork. This is the works of my hands. That's why the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, that the heavens declare his invisible attributes and divine power. They speak, the psalmist, the psalmist says the heavens declare, they speak, they testify. And you don't have to have a Bible to know that there is a God because of that which was created out of nothing. Pause. There are some that are here, some that are watching this online, and certainly there are some that you know in this community and elsewhere in our modern society that would hear that statement or read that verse and they would say to themselves or maybe say to you, see, that's, that's where, that's where I, you, you guys, you, you Christians, you people of faith, you lose me. You've lost me because now we live in a generation where science, the scientific enterprise, has, has shown faith to be irrelevant and, and, and that, that science, it... it it makes faith 
irrelevant. It's, it's, we live in a modern era. We live in a scientific age. And, and faith has demonstrated that, that, that it, or rather faith, science has demonstrated that God is not necessary for the creation of the universe. How, how many of you have, you have heard that? That's not an unfamiliar thing. That's, that's the language that we're constantly bombarded with. Constantly bombarded. And you, your kids are bombarded with it. At, at the high school level and certainly at the college level. Pop culture. On and on and on. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. So you're made to feel like faith is, ah, I should just keep my mouth shut. And, and that kind of faith won't endure. That kind of faith won't endure. So I want to address this before we get too far into the text. Hasn't science rendered faith irrelevant? Let's take a listen to what Stephen Hawking said in his book, The Grand Design, which was published in 2010. Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, um, a uh, astrophysicist, used to hold the, the chair that Isaac Newton held for Cambridge University, the chair of mathematics, one of the most brilliant minds in the last 50 years passed away not too long ago. He said, but almost all of us sometimes wonder, why are we here? Where do we come from? Traditionally, these questions are questions of philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophers have not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Let me just pause and say that probably 50, 60, 100 years ago, um, our culture in, in Western civilization looked to philosophers and or theologians for matters of meaning in life. So in other words, they looked to the people with robes on, the academic robes of the philosopher or the robes of the priest or the pastor. I don't wear a robe, but you get the idea. But our culture is still looking to individuals who wear robes, but they're not in the cleric. They are white lab coats. They're the new priests of the age. This is what he's saying. He's saying, we wear the robes now. We, the scientists, wear the... The, the role of philosophy and, and by virtue of its, its cousin theology, they're dead. Science rules now. Science rules. Rules now. He went on to say later in his book, The Grand Design, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So, in other words, there is no need for God anymore. We've figured this out. The, the, the new wearers of the robes, the white coats, the new priests, we're the ones you should listen to. The theologians, the philosophers, they're irrelevant. We figured this out. There's no need for God anymore. That is the clear message from many in the scientific community. Not all, but many in the scientific community. Now, let me just back up here to this original quote, and let me just interject my own personal journey as a follower of Christ. Uh, I was not raised in a Christian home. I didn't own a Bible until I came to college. My first Bible was a Green Gideon's New Testament that I received right outside of the student union. I did not come to faith in Christ until 1988, three years into my schooling here at the University of Iowa. As I was pursuing my degree in science education, I was studying physics 
and chemistry so that I could be a physics and chemistry teacher. Now, in science education, we had to take some courses that a pure science major did not have to take. These two courses were perhaps as influential in my young faith in grounding it as my readings of the scripture. Some of you are like, that's really fascinating that what you were learning in the science education wing in the seventh floor of Van Allen was strengthening your faith. Yes, it was. And here's the two courses. The two courses was, the first one was the philosophy and nature of science. The second course was science and historical perspectives. Because as a young person who was just now starting to read the Bible, my immediate was assumption was science and my newfound faith contradict one another. How is this going to work out? And what I found was that's not at all the case. That is not at all the case. I learned in that class that the most materialistic atheist astrophysicist, geneticist, has as strong as a faith as Billy Graham does or did. Now, that's not exactly what was stated, but I, I learned the nature of the scientific enterprise. I learned the nature of the scientific enterprise. In a wonderfully small little book, it's very concise by John Lennox, called Can Science Explain Everything? He's a former professor at uh, Oxford University in mathematics. He's a professor emeritus right now. Uh, Brilliant, brilliant mind. You say, well, Brooks, he's not a scientist. He's a mathematician. Mathematics is the language of science. You can't speak the language of physics without mathematics. So he's very, very schooled in science. Mathematics, physics. Anyway, he goes on to, uh, on to share a couple different things about what you're reading here with Stephen Hawking to show, to show us how uh, all the holes that are here. I want you to take a look at, the, at what Hawking said again. Uh, so he says, philosophy's dead. That in and of itself is a philosophical statement. It's self-refuting. That's not a statement that science can make. You see, philosophy... Philosophy is, is studying the nature of how truth is understood and how knowledge is acquired and how to communicate that knowledge. It's the study of what is. Science is the study of how. Philosophy is the study of why. And what he has said is philosophy is dead and science has replaced it. That's not a scientific statement. Science is the study of empirical data. What empirical data led Hawking to believe that philosophy and theology is dead. It's, there's nothing based upon evidence that would lead him to say that. It's not an evidence-based statement. It is a statement of belief. On to the next statement. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Let's look at the statement again. Because there is, is is a statement of existence. Is it not? Is. There is a law of like gravity. Gravity is the attractional force between two or more particles. Now, for gravity to be is, exists, there must be something. Otherwise, there is no gravity. Follow me? So because there is... 
something, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. That is completely illogical. This is why Albert Einstein, who was brilliant, who was a genius, but also very humble, made the following observation. Scientists make very poor philosophers. In other words, Stephen Hawking should stick to his lane, astrophysics, and not branch out into theology or philosophy of which he is not trained and knows very little about. See, this is not to diminish Stephen Hawking. This is not to diminish science. Science is a wonderful endeavor, and it brings us a clear understanding of the way the universe works, and it also allows for science to be harnessed in the form of technology to increase the flourishing of human activity. It is a gift from God. But to then take that and then say, therefore God is dead, is folly and has nothing to do with the scientific enterprise. Nothing to do with the scientific enterprise. Bottom line is, everyone has faith. Everyone has faith. Case in point, one more scientist. By the way, there are hundreds of thousands of brilliant scientists, Nobel laureates in various fields, that have deep, passionate, abiding faith in Christ. So I don't want you to understand that if someone is in science, therefore they are, they are not a person of faith. Not at all. What I'm trying to establish here is that the idea that science has abolished faith is, is not true. Case in point, Richard Lowenton, Harvard geneticist, world famous, had the following to say. Follow me closely. This is a, this is a longer quote. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment to materialism. Now, what is materialism? Materialism is the belief that the only thing that exists in the universe is the material universe, that there is nothing outside the material world, there is no supernatural. What, what's this text say? Because we have a prior commitment to materialism. That's what I learned in science education and the philosophy of science, that all scientists approach their scientific endeavor with a prior understanding of the way things work. The role of science is to either verify or to dismantle their prior understanding. Look at what he's saying. We have a prior commitment to materialism, but he's not finished. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanations for the phenomenal world. On the contrary, that we are forced by a priori adherence to a material causes to create apparatuses of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how contruitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, the materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. That is 
just as strong a statement as faith as the Apostles' Creed. And it has nothing to do with science. Even someone who is not initiated in either science or philosophy should be able to see that. And this is, he's not trying to hide it. So do not be intimidated in our modern culture with the new priests that wear the white lab coats. Some of them follow Jesus and some of them don't. But those that don't, don't follow Jesus, not on the basis of evidence that's led them to such, but on the basis of a prior commitment to a worldview and an ideology. Apologize for the brief segue away from Hebrews 11, but it's important to understand that in our day and age because this is one of the things which our, our, our young people and, and people that have been following Christ just for a little bit or people who are just considering Christ are often goaded into not considering or to abandoning their faith because of, well, you know, intelligent, rational people don't believe. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Not true at all. Okay, now let's transition to the object of faith. Now, in the case of, of Stephen Hawking, the object of his faith is not God, but rather his own ability to make sense of the universe. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? If not, bear with me. Let's take a look at the text. By faith, Abel, who's Abel? He's the son of Adam and Eve. By, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice to Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by his accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, let's take a... In the beginning, Adam, Eve, existed in perfect fellowship with one another in unity with one another in unity with God. But the serpent entered the garden and said, did God really say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Eve is like, no, no, he didn't say that. said that we cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor can we touch it, which he didn't say. For on the day that we eat of it, we will surely die. And, and the enemy, the serpent said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's, knowing good and evil. So Eve, seeing that the tree or the, the fruit was pleasing to the eyes, and good that taste, she took it. She ate, she gave some to her husband, and they both ate. Now, what's going on here? What, what's going on? She reckoned, by virtue of the seed of doubt which was planted into her mind from the enemy, that if she were to take that fruit, then she could be the determiner of what is right, what is wrong, and what is meaningful in life. That's exactly the route that Stephen Hawking has gone. What is the final arbiter of good and bad, right and wrong, true and false in the idea of a materialist? The human reasoning. The human reasoning. They're one and the same. That's it. That's it. That's it. 
She no longer trusted that her father was good. She didn't say that he didn't exist, but the functional outcome is identical. It's a drifting away from God. Now, you do have Abel, the next generation. He began to trust. Contrary to what his mother and father had done, he began to trust. But God did not leave them without a way back. Even after the fall, he said that the seed of the woman will crush the heel of the serpent. In other words, there's going to come a day, Eve, someday when one of your offspring, one of your offspring is going to undo everything that you did, everything that the serpent has done. And he is going to take evil and he is going to crush and he's going to eradicate sin and death. And Abel trusted this God. And Enoch trusted this God. This is a very rational faith. A very rational faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hawkins, Lewiton, modern man, the locus of trust, the locus of trust in modern man that does not believe in God is their ability to rationally figure out how the universe works. Now, I'm running out of time, but I can't resist going here. If the material universe is all that exists, why are we here? Let me answer the question. Random time, matter, and chance. We evolved. Because gravity exists, like Hawking said, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Contradictory statement, but let's just roll with it. So your mind is a product of evolutionary chance. What is the basis, rationally, that you should trust the reasoning of a mind which came into being without design? There isn't. There isn't. But that's not the case. Genesis 1, verse 27, says, And God created them, male and female, in His image. He created you to be a rational creature that thinks, that analyzes, that can take data, that can do science, that can do philosophy, that can do theology, to love God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. That's the kind of faith that endures. Not the just believe kind of faith, which can't stand up to scrutiny. And once the pressure gets hot, you'll find the first exit out. There is no enduring faith unless that faith is rooted in the God who created you to have assurance of the things hoped for, the things which are not yet seen. So I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what is the object of your faith? Everyone has faith. Contrary to what many atheists believe, well, they believe, they have faith. That's the point. What is the object of your faith? What do you believe? You say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you do believe in something. You do believe in something. What is it? What do you look for for hope? What do you hope will give your life meaning? That's the object of your faith. That's the object of your faith. Is it Christ? You say, well, I'm a Christian. That's not what I asked. Assenting to the death, burial, and resurrection does not mean that your hope is there. And that's the problem. That's the kind of faith that won't endure. If you assent to the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ and the truth of Scripture, but that's not where your hope is, then your hope is somewhere else. Your faith is somewhere else. Where is it? Where is it? I would encourage you this week 
to meditate on, on, on what the author of Hebrews said. For long ago and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. I would encourage you to meditate this week on Christ. We're going to see this in chapter 12. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Take your eyes and put them on the object of faith, which is Christ. Study the gospel of John. John wrote in John chapter 20, at the end of his gospel, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe slash trust, have faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, that is, trusting, having faith, you may have eternal life in his name. So zero in on the person of Christ, the object and perfecter of your faith. Investigate his claims. Investigate. Put your scientific hat on. Investigate historically the claims of Christ. Investigate the works of Christ, what he did and why he did them. Investigate the character of Christ, what he cared about and what made him tick and investigate the love of Christ. And you will find that God loves even those who waver in their faith. And he has demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, i.e. not trusting him. He went to the cross and bore my faithlessness and bore your faithfulness that you might be adopted into his family and receive the righteousness of Christ. That's faith that will get you through hard times and that's faith that will endure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact in your word that you say, though we are faithless, you are always faithful. Help us to know what we believe, why we believe it, and ground our hope in you. Father, I pray for those who are, who are considering Christ. I pray, Father, that you would show them the reality of your presence. I pray for those who are strong in their faith that you would send their roots deeper still. And I pray, Father, for those who are wavering, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would help them to stand firm, not to just believe, but to look to you who is the justifier of those who believe. And Lord, ground our faith that we may endure so that Christ might be exalted to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, go in grace, and we'll see you next week.